You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. Help us to sing it. Help us to know it. Help us to love it. Help us to live it. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand this difficult teaching, but we are so thankful that you have, by your Spirit, Lord Jesus, given us this word to us for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Nathan. I would love to meet you after the service. Uh, Well, like I mentioned at the end of last week's sermon, while the end of the so-called, or the parable of the so-called prodigal son the parable of the two sons that we spent time in last week. It's fairly easy to understand, though on the surface we saw that it's much deeper than we perhaps had quickly understood. This parable in Luke 16, the dishonest manager, or perhaps the subtitle in your Bible might call it the parable of the unjust steward, is likely the most difficult parable in the Bible. This may be one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. Verse 9 is seemingly impossible to make sense of, where Jesus says, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Got it? Uh, Well, we've already seen Luke ongoingly highlight Jesus' teaching about money and possessions. And this week and the next, really all of chapter 16 will hammer this theme of money and possession or possessions. But this difficult, difficult text doesn't just 
fall out of the sky. It's come, it comes in context right after chapter 15. Last week, we saw the Pharisees and scribes get very angry when tax collectors and sinners began hearing the teaching of Jesus, when they began to come to him in repentance. And so Jesus, we saw last week, told them three escalating parables. Will these Pharisees, will these scribes, find themselves to be worse off than Esau, than Ishmael, two older brothers who scorned their inheritance from their father? Will the Pharisees put their internal inheritance at risk by staying outside of the party, by begrudging the love of God, and by making demands of him because of their so-called righteousness? Well, after giving such a direct parable to them, In verse 1 of Luke 16, Luke is going to tell us that Jesus is now going to turn his attention to his disciples. We see that, right? And he told his disciples. He's turning his attention to those who are following and wanting to learn from him. Now we'll find out next week that the Pharisees are still there. They are still eavesdropping on this entire thing. But this is for the disciples. What will the disciples do with their resources? Will they waste them like the younger brother? Will they scorn the father? Will they put their resources, their inheritance at risk by keeping themselves far from the love of God? And so Jesus tells them the parable of the dishonest manager. And so we're going to think about this really, really difficult parable and Jesus' summary thoughts after the parable in two halves tonight. We're going to think about the timing of our resources and the stewardship of our resources. Jesus is talking about money, possessions, things that we own. And so he wants us, he's going to confront the timing and the stewardship of the things that we have. So first of all, the timing of our resources. All right, before we get into the meat of this parable, Jesus is using a pretty effective literary device here, the literary device of the anti-hero. We see this all the time. Think about someone like Han Solo, who is just kind of a renegade rogue, but then he actually begins to fight for and serve others outside of himself. Jack Sparrow, Severus Snape, spoiler, Uh, Walter White, you Albuquerque people, and perhaps even Shrek, two weeks in a row. You didn't think I could get another Shrek illusion into this, but Shrek is just living his life, selfishly lonely, but then he goes on a quest and he uh, lives for things outside of himself. Why do we like characters like these? Why do writers keep writing stories about them? One, because they're a bit more complex. There are shades of gray with these characters. It's not always immediately clear to them and to the reader or the the viewer what is right or wrong in this situation. And so characters like this force us, the reader or the viewer or the hearer or whatever, to wrestle philosophically with morality. What is right or wrong in this situation? But second, These kinds of anti-heroes usually do unexpected things. These are unexpected stories. We saw last week the unexpected surprise that Jesus takes the story in, but this week is a whole new level. So let's get into it. Here's the story that he tells. There's this rich man. There's a boss, a landowner, and he has this, this boss, has a manager who works on his behalf, but charges get brought against the manager that he's wasting the boss's possessions. It's not immediately clear if the manager was just a poor businessman, like things are 
slipping out of his control and there's money being wasted here because he's not very good at his job, or if he's doing this uh, intentionally. This is probably the case because Jesus uses the same word, wasting, as what the younger son did when he wasted the father's inheritance. If the manager is intentionally stealing the boss's money here and then spending it on himself, this is serious business, and charges have been brought against him by the boss. Either way, whatever, if it's intentional or not, the boss calls him in and says, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. The manager doesn't respond. His silence here is is essentially an admission of guilt. But the boss doesn't fire him immediately. He doesn't hand the manager like a banker's box and like logs him out of all of his corporate email accounts immediately. But it's over. It's done. You're no longer working on my behalf. Finish everything up because you're fired. But this is now a serious time for the manager. He thinks to himself, I can't do hard manual labor. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So he's got to do something to help other people like him. This is judgment day in front of him. He looks into the dark abyss in front of him and he thinks, because there are no good options in front of me, I've got to do something crazy. I've got to do something decisive. He knows that everyone now will know that he's a cheat and he's not going to get hired in a new job. And since working is too hard and begging is too shameful, he thinks, um, friends, I need friends. If I can get into other people's good graces, maybe they'll let me live in their nice houses because I'm about to be unemployed and potentially homeless. Now, so far, only he and his boss know what's happened. It's just between him him and the boss. So he's got this limited window of opportunity where he can still act without other people not knowing that he's not acting on behalf of the manager that he has a job and he's legitimately working for the boss. To everyone else, anything that he says or does actually does come with the boss's authority. Everybody else in town doesn't know that yet, but they soon will find out that he's lost his job, that he doesn't speak on behalf of the manager or of the boss, so he's got to move. So he begins calling in the, the boss's debtors one by one. The first guy comes in, and this guy owes him 100 measures of oil. This is about 850 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil. It's it's about the output of 150 olive trees of that year. This would amount to about three years' salary for this kind of upwardly mobile merchant trader. So let's just say this guy, this first debtor, maybe he makes a salary of like $100,000 a year. So this guy, if it's three years' salary, owes the boss... 300 grand. The manager says, hey, let's take this bill out. Let's cut it in half. Does that sound good? 300 grand? How about 150? 50 measures of oil. Like, can you imagine if your mortgage lender out of the blue just called you and said, hey, would you come into the office? I've got some things that I want to talk to you about. And then out of the blue, maybe you owe $300,000 on your mortgage. And the mortgage lender says, would it be all right with you if we cut that in half? 150 grand? Does that sound good to you? Yes, please and thank you. But then he does it with another debtor. This guy owes 100 measures of wheat, the output of about 100 acres. This would amount to about 8 to 10 years' salary. And he tells him, quick, hey, let's rewrite this, shall we? So that you only owe 80 measures. 
So if we work with like big round numbers for the sake of the story, let's say he owes 10 years of $100,000. He owes a million dollars to this landowner, the boss. And the manager knocks off 20%. He knocks off 200,000. This is less proportionately than the first debtor, than the first guy, but there's even more canceled debt here this, with the second guy than the first. $200,000, maybe more than just 150000 Like, oh my goodness, this sounds great. Mr. Manager, you're the best. Anytime, you know what? Hey, anytime you want to come like stay at the hunting ranch, anytime you want to use the cabin, just let me know. Sounds good. If anytime you need anything, don't hesitate to call. $150,000, $200,000, debt gone? Yes. And on top of this, not only doing what he needs to do for himself, remember, there's nothing but the abyss in front of him. This is judgment day. There is, the end is coming. But even more, we can maybe even guess that these people went and told everyone in their small village about the generosity of who? The boss, the landowner. Like, can you believe how generous he is? All along, the, the manager is banking on perhaps a reputation, either a past reputation or one that he's creating here, of this merciful streak within the, the boss's character. He's fair. Actually, after all, he, he just fired me. But he is merciful. Now, if you weren't familiar with the story, if you had never read or heard this read before Logan read it just a few minutes ago, how would you expect the boss to react? He's just lost potentially like $350,000 or something. Gone, vanished. Like what would you expect him to do? What should he do? Likely, he would respond with fury. Like he should arrest the manager. He should throw him into jail. But thinking through this, the manager is less, left with two options here. He can go back to the debtors and tell them, hey, I know what this manager told you, but he didn't have the authority to do that. He was fired. He acted illegally and without my authority. But what would happen if he did this? It would utterly ruin theirs and perhaps the entire town's uh, perspective of his reputation. It would ruin their opinion of him. They will now see him as unfair. What was done is now being undone. So that's the first option. And the second option is he can just keep quiet. He can lose his money, but he'll keep his generous reputation. So he can get his money back, but lose his reputation in standing in town. Or he can lose his money, but increase his reputation in his standing in town. Now he obviously chooses the second option perhaps revealing what the manager was banking on all along. His mercy, his understanding, and his preservation of his own character. But confusingly, he actually, in the midst of all this, commends the manager. Like a, hey, good job, man. Well done there. Seemingly like a, attaboy. I'm real proud of you. Like that doesn't make any sense. And that's it. Like the parable ends. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The end. So confusing. And then Jesus concludes the story with extra confusing commentary. 
Verses 8 and 9, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends by yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What? Like, should we now just say, thank you, Jesus, I'm now going to cheat on my taxes. Thank you, Lord, for commending this example to me so that I can maybe like hack into my mortgage lender's website and just readjust the amount of debt that I still owe. Should we like double cross our bosses and just start giving away the company's money? It seems like it. It seems like the Lord would be very pleased in this and commend us in this. But we know from the rest of the Bible, we know from the rest of Jesus' teaching that this cannot possibly be what Jesus is teaching or commending here. So what is he commending? Why would both the boss and Jesus commend this man in this story? Well, the first thing we should observe is exactly what it is that the boss is commending. Verse 8, what? The master commended the dishonest manager for what? For his shrewdness. There is a difference between commending his dishonesty and commending his shrewdness or his cleverness. The dishonesty is referring to the manager's initial wasting of the money and then his wrongfully canceling the debt. That was dishonest. He should not have done that. The boss is not commending that. But the boss is commending this man's cleverness, his shrewdness. He's essentially saying, wow, man. You really got me. You guy. You really put me in a pickle there. One commentator says, This man is a fraud, but he is a most ingenious fraud. This steward is a rascal, but he is a wonderfully clever rascal. And that's what the boss is commending. Wow, sir, you are a clever rascal. When it comes to the moment of crisis... The dishonest man uses dishonesty to be rewarded according to the system under which he's living. He completely and utterly understands the system. He understands the boss. He understands the debtors. He understands money and jobs and rewards. He knows exactly what he is doing. As judgment day was quickly approaching, the manager acted decisively and went, all in. What else have I got to lose? There's no going back now. So here, Jesus is making another argument that we have, the kind of argument that we've seen him make so many times throughout the Gospel of Luke. The argument of the lesser thing to the greater thing. If this is true here, then how much more here? Remember, if God cares for these lesser things, the, the birds and the flowers, if he's going to care for them and provide them these tiny little meaningless, insignificant things, how much more will he care and provide for you? Or even last week, if in, in comparing the older brother in the parable of the two sons to Esau, if Esau, the older brother who loved soup more than he loved God, can welcome and embrace his publicly sinful little brother, how much more should you? Someone who is claiming to be sons of God, is claiming to understand and receive the inheritance of God. If Esau can, can you? Here, verse 8, 
For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus is calling this dishonest manager a son of the world. He is a son of the darkness. So if this man, if this son of the darkness understands the system in which he lives and acts so shrewdly, if he acts so cleverly, how much more should you, O children of light, live in such a way? Understanding the system, understanding the the world and the kingdom in which you live, how much more shrewdly, how much more decisively and all in should you, O children of light, live? He's dividing the universe into two kingdoms, the kingdom of light, of God, of heaven, and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And while the kingdom isn't fully here, isn't fully realized, we are still living in it. We are still living under King Jesus. And if, even though that's true, Jesus is saying, while all that's true, yet the children of darkness often act more wisely in their kingdom than Christians often do in their kingdom. This cannot and should not be. The world around us, like the manager, the world of darkness, usually and always makes decisions that will benefit themselves. That's kingdom of darkness stuff. Jesus is calling his disciples into making decisions and plans and using their resources for kingdom of light stuff. For others. Why? Why is he calling these kingdom of light people, his disciples, to act decisively, to use their resources for the kingdom and for others? Well, first of all, in thinking through our first point, the, the timing of our resources, It's just because all of these things are just so temporary in the first place. Judgment day is coming. The end of it, the loss of it all moment is imminently coming, is certainly coming, which is what Jesus is saying in this really, really difficult difficult to understand verse 9. One scholar of parables explains that when Jesus says, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, We should understand that to mean that we should use our money, we should use our resources, which belong to this kingdom, this this earthly stuff that is often used for unrighteousness, and we should use it to put ourselves in good standing with others around us. We should use kingdom of darkness stuff for kingdom of heaven purposes, so that when it fails, when all this kingdom of darkness stuff, when all this money and possessions, all this very temporary stuff that we temporarily own, when all of that runs out, either in this life or at death, those whom we have blessed, those whom we have cared for, those whom we have served with our things, they might receive us, they might welcome us into the eternal kingdom. That is, using that which is impermanent to gain a permanent lasting benefit. Now, this is not to say that we can, like, buy our way into heaven. Like, if you serve enough people with your things, then you'll certainly be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. But just as the manager went all in with his decisive decision, his decisive decisions were so that he could be welcomed into the house of the rich in the next phase of his life, so should we make decisive decisions so that we, too, can be welcomed into the houses of the rich in the next life. 
But we'll see, again, how this parable doesn't just fall to us out of the sky. There's something that came before it, and there's something that comes after it. Next week, we're going to see who the houses of the rich actually are. How everything, again, is upside down in another parable of the so-called rich man, the temporarily rich man, and the really rich man, the poor man Lazarus. So the truly wise, the shrewd, the clever, will then prepare for and make decisions in light of the eternal future that is sure to come, just like the manager made decisions for his quickly and imminently coming future. May it not be that the people of darkness give more thought to their temporary future, their temporary physical well-being, than we people of light give to our eternal spiritual well-being. And may it certainly not be that we give more thought to our temporary physical future, temporary present well-being than we people of light give to our eternal spiritual well-being. It all comes and goes so fast. Look, like, Marcy and I are about to have our second kid in high school. That's crazy. With two more right on their heels. Like, college for them is coming fast. Things are more expensive these days, and as Christians, we should care about being wise stewards of God's, God's money. More on that in a second. We should work hard. We should invest well. We should plan for the future. The Proverbs, among other places in the Bible, absolutely commend this. But do we give this much thought to? Do we put this much investment in what will last for eternity? It's all coming just so fast. It comes and goes. Life comes and goes. Becoming, instead of what we so often spend our time and attention to, do we spend our time and attention to? Do we invest in what is eternal? Becoming rich to God, rich in our deepening knowledge and joy and worship of God, rich in peace and contentment, understanding our everlasting inheritance that he gives to his children of himself. A kingdom of peace for eternity. And this is the timing of our resources. What God gives us in this life is so temporary. It ends, and it ends soon. You high school and college students, I know that this is the last thing that you want to hear from this 40-year-old man with a few gray hairs coming in. It goes so fast. High school really does seem like yesterday to me. Like, I can remember very, very easily thoughts and emotions from when I was like 15, 16. It seems not that long ago. 40-year-olds seemed so old. And I too, someday, in an altogether different life, you all out there should be thinking, I too, in some altogether different life, it seems so far away, will one day be 40, but it will be tomorrow. Because here I am, and it's not an altogether different life. I don't feel that old. I kind of feel like I'm still a kid. It's just life. But then tomorrow I'll be 50, and then the next day I'll be 65, and then the next day I'll be 90, maybe, and we've reached the end. I was in a couple of hospital rooms holding newborns a couple of weeks ago, and I unexpectedly, like out of nowhere, 
got really, really teary, right? <laughs> like, out of nowhere, I was like, this was yesterday for me. It was 15 years ago the first time, but now what just happened? It's so fast. Our lives are here, gone, and forgotten. What is it that we are investing in? Here's what Jesus is pressing in on with his disciples. If you are able to have very easy conversations, if you are able to have really quick and uh, informed conversations about stocks and bonds and real estate and the hottest crypto markets, but you're unable to talk about what you're learning from what you're reading in the Bible, if you're unable to have the same kind of depth of conversation about the character of God and your place in his world, perhaps use this time to reevaluate. But not just with money. What is it that we invest our time into? If you are able to explain all of the latest celebrity gossip and tea, but you are bored by prayer. If you're able to explain the pros and cons of this new potential coach's defensive philosophy or the potential of the guys at the very bottom of your team's practice squad, or if each morning you read of today's political controversy which cultivates more fear and hatred of those in Santa Fe or in Washington, if you're able to explain their voting record on this and this and this and this, but you're unable to recount the this and this and this of God's character, his work in history, or worse, his character and his work, his action, this, 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 and this in your own life, perhaps use this time to reevaluate. What is it that you are investing in? Financial investments, lives of celebrities, sports and coaches and politics, none of these things are necessarily sinful. But the truly wise, the clever, the shrewd, will then prepare for and make decisions in light of not tomorrow's future, but eternity's future. Just like the manager made decisions for his quickly coming future. So if this is the timing that all of our resources are just temporary, our lives and our money are here and gone, rather than make deeper and longer-lasting investments in the future. And by the way, we'll have much more to think about with money and resources. The end of, next, of, the end of chapter 16 next week, certainly chapter 19 with the parable of the talents, the rich young ruler, all of these things are coming in Luke's gospel. But the point of all of this is because of our, our resources are temporary, become rich in God. Invest shrewdly with your time because the end of it all is coming quickly. So now, if that's the timing, let's think about what we have now, our resources in the present, and how to presently steward them well. The stewardship of our resources. Like the manager, we should all hear this parable and ask ourselves, Okay, now what? What should I do, Jesus? What should I do with my life? And so Jesus pushes even further down. He moves into the motives of our hearts with our money, the worship of our hearts. In verses 10 through 13, let me read this again. Jesus says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. 
And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. How we approach our money is ultimately a matter of worship, is ultimately a question about who is it? What is it that you serve? What do you think will secure you? What do you think will deliver you? Oftentimes, the answer to that question, I think, perhaps more today than ever, in a society and a culture that has more money than ever, we still think, perhaps more than any generation before us, we think the answer to that question, what will secure me, what will deliver me, is more money. More, either that will take me out of a current difficulty that I find myself in to some unknown better reality, And that's not to minimize some very difficult financial situations that many of us find ourselves in, either situations that we've put ourselves into by unwise and foolish spending, or sometimes things that are entirely unforeseen, things that are entirely out of your control. But what Jesus is doing here is, like he said, of family relationships back in chapter 14. Remember when he said, to be his disciple, you have to hate your father, your mother, your child, your spouse— We saw that that's not saying that you must cultivate some sense of like ongoing despising of these people in your life, these relationships in your life. But Jesus is saying you must rank your loves. You must rank your priorities. And when the priority of family comes over and against what it means to follow me, you must choose me. These are distracting voices that are distracting you into trails that will not lead you to safety at the bottom of the mountain. You cannot serve two masters. If money, if the accumulation of more of it and more of it and more and more things, if this is your guiding north star, your guiding light, if this is the gravitational center of your universe, then by definition, Jesus is not. You cannot have two true norths on a compass at the exact same time. The needle can't do that. It cannot move in two places. It will point to true north. There must be a right direction, the ultimate navigational direction. Now again, we're going to have much more to think about in Luke with our money, especially with the rich young ruler in chapter 18, but Jesus' point here just like the the hating and the despising family language, isn't that we would hate our jobs, that we would hate our paychecks. Jesus' point is not that, like, for the sake of Christ, I'm going to now live in abject poverty. Because this is exactly the opposite of what he says in verse 11. Do you see that? In verse 10, Jesus says that if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. And if dishonest in little, in a little, dishonest in much. But then he explains what he means by that in verse 11. He says, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will you entrust? Who will entrust to you the true riches? Unrighteous here doesn't necessarily mean sinful. It just means worldly. This is temporary, worldly, not sacred wealth. Your paycheck. And he's saying, if you can't be trusted with that, 
If you can't be trusted with your paycheck, your investments, if you can't be trusted with your house and your car and your clothes and your electronics, if you can't be trusted in what is temporary and doesn't really matter, why can you be trusted in what actually does matter with the eternal things that will not fade? Now again, don't hear me wrong here. The ongoing stress of having bills that outweigh paychecks can be immense. That stress can be emotionally taxing and oppressive even. And the likely majority of Christians who have ever lived in this world have needed to trust God, to daily provide food, to perhaps even provide shelter. Until about like 100, maybe 120 years ago, for nearly all of humanity. Right now, like this first week of February, would be like kind of like the starting to starve weeks of the year for us. Where the winter stores of food are beginning to run out, where the food that we've saved in our homes or in the village, they're beginning to spoil. We're beginning to, February, eat a little less, go to bed a little hungrier, maybe not eat much today, maybe not eat much at all. And so our lives with Smith's and Walmart and Whole Foods, which are just loaded with fresh produce and anything that we can possibly want, like just doesn't compute here. But throughout Luke, we've seen Jesus identify with the poor. Because the poor are people who must depend. They must depend on the good and generous provision of God. And those kind of people are Jesus' kind of people. Not inherently, just because they don't have anything, the poor, those who are lacking, can often grow very angry to God. That is sinful. But I said that the people who must depend on the good and generous provision of God, those kind of people are Jesus' kind of people who say, all I have needed, your hand hath provided. Great is your faithfulness. Give us this day our daily bread. I will not survive this day if it's not for new morning mercies today. And you will give it. You have given it. But here's the point of all of this. Jesus is really getting after. Can you be trusted with your worldly wealth, whether it be a very little or a whole lot? It is not sinful to try to improve your financial situation. Jesus says, if you can't be trusted here, can you be trusted here? It's not sinful to seek more qualifications, better jobs, better pay. It's not wrong or sinful to work really hard, shrewdly, cleverly. In fact, Christians should work excellently as unto the Lord, but as unto the Lord does not mean that it's wrong to ask for a raise. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 that the laborer deserves his wages. Paul commends hard work in Ephesians 4, among other places, so that we, by working hard and making more, will not put ourselves in a place of taking from others, but we will have more to give away. But here again is what Jesus is getting at, that our budgets, what we spend our money on here, our budgets are actually moral documents. A spreadsheet is a moral document. A lack of a spreadsheet, a lack of a budget, is actually a moral lack. Our personal budgets, 
what we spend our money on monthly, our corporate budgets, our city, state, federal government's budgets, our church budget. All of these budgets, these spreadsheets, reveal what we value. Where we spend our money is what we value. Now, Jesus is not saying all this so that we'll be scared into earning a heavenly reward as if we could buy one. But he says all of these things so that we will reflect on who it is that we serve. Do we, do you serve the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self? Am I the owner? Am I the boss of all my stuff or is God? Am I merely a steward of God's things? Am I merely a manager of God's things? What should I do with my stuff? What should I do with my paycheck? How can I be most effective in the kingdom, the system under which I am living? Where should I live? What kind of job should I pursue? Where should I be generous with my money? What ministries should I support? These questions are really difficult. There are, there's not a Bible verse for that. They're not immediately clear. This requires communal wisdom to help us see our own blind spots. We seek transparency. We seek accountability in so many areas of our lives. Maybe money, which Jesus is so often eternally serious about, should be an area that we also seek more transparency, more accountability in as well. Now, just like in chapter 14, if you go back to chapter 14, uh, what, two or three weeks ago, when I brought up church membership, is actually one of the most countercultural, radical evidences of discipleship in our lives. Remember when I was saying that Jesus can, can always have more of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but I hoped by saying and commending even church membership to us all, I hoped to encourage, to comfort so many of you that, guys, you're doing it. You're following him radically in your lives. You're following Christ by being part of his church, by serving its people, by following him in the context of these relationships. And in the same way, while Jesus can always have more of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength, while Jesus can always have more of our heart in how we think about money, for so many of you in this room, I can say, guys, you're doing it. You are so generous with your money. You are not serving money, but you are serving God. You are so generous with how you give to the life and to the budget of this local church, this budget that supports these staff ministers, me. I'm so thankful. The ministries that we support, the mission and church planning work that goes out and through this church because of the dollars that send these things along its way. <laughs> the children that we support. The meals, the hospitality, the one-time or recurring needs of the body that pop up and then get so quickly met, so quickly. This is one of the most generous churches that I have ever been part of. And I just want to commend us in how all of you are following Jesus. So many of you are following Jesus. Rather than like maybe how so many money sermons might end with, uh, well, guys, you're giving this much, but you should probably give this much because Jesus deserves it, doesn't he? Maybe. But guys, you are so kind, so generous. 
You are thinking about your money and your possessions so well. We are asking, so many of us, asking the kind of transparency and accountability that I'm talking about. And yet, even while all of that's true, I don't want an opportunity to slip by us if there are some in this room who actually do need to grow in conviction with how we do think about our money, our stuff, that nothing we own is actually ours. Because Jesus tells us where we put our treasure, our heart will follow. It's true that our budgets are moral documents. They reveal what we worship. But if you find yourself bored by the glory of God, if you find yourself bored by his kindness to you in Christ, it's possible, if not certain, that your heart will follow that which you invest your money in, your heart in. Where are you pursuing generosity in your life? Toward others in need, toward the expansion of the gospel in the world, toward the upkeep and the expenses of the local church to the needs of the individual members of our church. Again, we pursue transparency and accountability, even coaching and discipline in so many areas of our lives. Why in the world would we say of this area of our lives, no, this is off limits. This is a room that is locked that no one gets a say in, when Jesus very often says that this locked room of your life may be just what keeps you from heaven. It's a bold thing to say, but when we choose things, the pursuit of money over the pursuit of Christ, are we actually pursuing Christ? Are we actually following him? Are we actually trusting him? Because here's the beauty of this parable and the glory of the gospel. Just like the manager, we sit in silence. The case against us does not have any holes. We are guilty. We have cheated the master of the worship, honor, and glory due to him, and we have swindled it. We have stolen it for ourselves instead. We put our hands over our mouths. We have nothing to say. Condemned. And yet, like the manager, we know the character of the master to be merciful. We see his mercy every day in letting us wake to another day, living in the most prosperous and healthy period of human history and revealing himself to us in creation and in his word. The case against us is open and shut and like a good judge, he has to execute justice, but not on us. Not on those who are trusting in him. He substitutes himself. God the Son offers himself in the place of dishonest glory swindlers to receive the just judgment of God the Father so that by God the Spirit, we, the dishonest, might receive the honest life of God, might no longer swindle his glory but return it to him in praise. And like the manager, our only hope is to bank on the mercy and the kindness of God, that these qualities are a part of his very being. Now, parables are analogies, they don't have one-for-one -one component parts, and we shouldn't pick apart every detail. We don't trick God into letting us off the hook. And God, unlike the manager, unlike us, he moves towards us. God, the boss in this parable, he's the one that concocts the plan to forgive us. We didn't have to do anything. We don't have to do anything. But if we don't take the way out that he's given us, we stay in condemnation. The abyss of judgment is before you and comes quick. What will you do? Will you act decisively and go all in? How then should we then live? 
How and in what will you invest? Will you invest in that which will last? Now, I don't often do this, but I'm going to end this by just reading a few verses from 1 Peter 1. I'm going to ask Wilfredo to put this up. I want to put this up so, because I don't want you to zone out here while I read a few verses from the Bible, all right? Just, you, this is something from 1 Peter 1 that perhaps you've read before, but with this parable of the unjust manager, Luke 16, I think Peter can help us cement down this parable's meaning. Let me just read this and follow along. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are so thankful that you have not left us to concoct some plan out of our predicament. In fact, there is no plan out of our predicament, out of our just condemnation before you. And yet you have not sent your son into this world to condemn the entire world, but to save it, to redeem it, to reconcile itself to, or it to yourself, to call those wayward orphans into your family to become your very sons and daughters with an inheritance incorruptible, imperishable. Lord, might we make our lives more and more about that which is eternal, enjoying the temporary, but enjoying it as temporary, as a gift from you, new morning mercies to provide all that we need so that we might be uh, found trusting in our eternal Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, pray all these things in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.